It's always good to see you, to be with God's people. We appreciate every opportunity to, to worship God. He deserves our very best. It's a privilege for us to be with him and in one another's company. It may be because I became a Christian a little bit later in life than some others, but I remember reading certain things in the Bible for the first time. You know, if you grow up sort of reading the Bible and being exposed to the scriptures, going to Bible classes and so forth, it may be that you don't recall the first time you heard certain things or read certain things. But I remember reading certain things for the first time because they made an impression on me. Now, for example, as I was reading through the Old Testament in particular as a, as a younger man, I remember reading about Nadab and Abihu. I remember reading how God made a breach on them after they tried to offer him unauthorized sacrifices. I remember reading about a man named Uzzah and how the Bible says he was ostensibly trying to do what seemed like a good thing in the moment, but God made a breach upon him because he was doing something that God hadn't authorized. I remember, I remember reading about Korah and Dathan and Abiram how the Bible says that they didn't do what God said should be done. They didn't accept what God said should be done. And so he opened the ground and swallowed them and everything that appertained to them and then closed the ground up again. You know, that kind of thing made an impression on me. I sort of got the idea that the God I was contemplating serving at the time of that reading was kind of serious. When he said that people ought to do something, he expected that they would do it, and there were consequences when they did not. I want to call your attention to another passage that struck me in a similar vein when I read it for the first time. It's in Ezekiel 22. In Ezekiel 22, the Bible tells us that uh, God speaks to this prophet and tells him that he was to go and and share certain things with the people. The people were in great distress. By this time, they were in affliction. They had been taken away into Assyrian captivity. And uh, they may have been asking the question, how could all of this have happened? You know, they're thinking to themselves, we are God's chosen people. We are special. How could it be that we find ourselves in this condition? And God explains in that chapter why they were where they were. And as a matter of fact, there was more to come. Among other things, you'll see in that chapter that what God does is he sort of surveys the people of the land. And he says that they were all wicked. They had all gone out of the way. He mentions the priests. And he said they were people with bloody hands and they were oppressors of the poor. He mentions the prophets, the princes, the priests, and the people. That's everybody. He says all of them were wicked. All of them had gone out of the way. They were a land that was not clean. They were a land that was not rained upon in the day of indignation. People who were not doing what God said should be done. And then by way of summary in verses 30 and 31, by way of summary, he, he makes this statement. He says, and I, he says, cause it to, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter there. Chapter 22 and verse 30. I sought for a man among them that should build up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Listen to it. But I found none. 
He says, I've surveyed all the people. I, I've looked at all the folks here. I've looked at the religious leaders. I've looked at the political leaders. I've looked at the common folks. And, and my expectation was that I could find one person who would cooperate with me in doing what should be done. I couldn't find one. You know what stuck out to me, what struck out at me when I read that? You know, if God was looking for an army of people and he couldn't raise an army, maybe I could understand. If he was looking for a company of folks, if he needed a squadron to get something done and he couldn't find it, maybe I could understand. If he needed a quartet or a triumvirate, if he needed a dynamic duo and he couldn't find two people, maybe I could understand. But he says, I was looking for one person who would listen to me and cooperate with me in doing what needed to be done and I couldn't find one. That was a tremendous indictment on every person who was alive in Israel at the time. He says, I sought for a man that should make up the hedge. That's the way the old version reads. Make up the wall and stand in the gap before me for the land so that I wouldn't have to destroy it. You know, in old times, those uh, big cities were surrounded by walls. The purpose of those walls was protection. You know, it kept some people out and it kept other people in. Any city that was worthwhile was surrounded by a wall. And so if you wanted to get in to do damage in the city, you would first attack the wall. Nebuchadnezzar was expert at that. That's how he took Jerusalem in the beginning. But listen, what they would do is they would surround a city and they would make siege works upon the wall, destroy the wall, put a hole in it so they could flow in. Well, God says, you know, I was looking for somebody who would recognize that I have bounded my people with a wall to protect them, keeping them in and others out. And when the wall had a breach in it, you know what the soldiers would do. If they couldn't repair the wall fast enough with sticks and stone, mortars and wood, if they couldn't repair the wall fast enough, they would put their physical bodies in the breach. They would become the wall. He says, I needed somebody that would make up the hedge and stand in the gap. They would expose themselves if need be to keep everybody else safe. says, I... I couldn't find one. Israel, you want to know what happened to you? You want to know why you are where you are? You, you ask yourself, how could this happen? Us being God's special people, how, how could this happen? You want to know how it happened? You wouldn't cooperate with me. You, you wouldn't do what I told you needed to be done. In verse 31, he says, Therefore have I poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I brought upon their head, says the Lord Jehovah. All I've done is allowed them to reap the, the rewards that they should reap for what they have done. All I've done is allowed them to, to deal with the natural consequences of disobedience because I just couldn't find anybody who was willing to cooperate. There have been times in my life where I have, in reading this passage, turned my face to the wall and wept because it's just such a tremendous indictment on everybody who was alive in Israel at that time that God said, I need somebody who's willing to cooperate with me in doing what needs to be done so I don't have to destroy. And everybody else had something better to do. I read a passage like that and I ask this question, you know, what would you do if you knew God 
wanted you to do something, what would you do? How would you respond? If you knew that God needed someone to cooperate with him in seeing that his will was done so that destruction would not befall others, what would you, what would you do? How would you respond? If God called you to do a thing, how would you respond? What, what if God didn't call you directly, but he made it clear that he needed someone to do a thing? How would you respond? I ask myself this question from time to time in life because I've been presented with circumstances where somebody needed to do something. And uh, you know, what? If, if something needs to be done and nobody else is doing it, I guess that's me, right? If God called you, how would you answer? Now, I ask you that question, and then I want to give you this caution. You be careful how you answer. Because sometimes I find that even great men don't respond the way they should when God calls them to do a thing, at least not in the first instance. I want you to open your Bible, if you don't mind, Ezekiel, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 3. In Exodus chapter 3, we're going to look at Moses. And, you know, Moses, for my money, was the best leader the world has ever known except Jesus. And I, and I know that's a matter of opinion, and I recognize that. And I tell people they can choose somebody else if they want. They have a right to be wrong. It's Moses. Okay, it is Moses. But he didn't begin that way. In Exodus chapter 3, you'll remember, now Moses... Moses had uh, thought that it was going to be his business to deliver Israel, and he went about it in a way that everybody didn't quite appreciate. And so now he's fled from Egypt and winds up tending his father-in-law's sheep on a mountain on the backside of somebody's mountain there in Midian. Now listen, the Bible says that he is going now. He has his father's sheep, and this is in verse 3. An angel of Jehovah appears to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush, and he looks on it, and he sees that the bush is burning but not consumed. Out of this bush, listen, Jehovah speaks to him out of this bush, calls him by name, Moses, Moses. Take the sandals off of your feet because the ground where you're standing is holy ground. He takes the sandals off of his feet and God says to him, I have something that I want you to do, sir. I'm going to send you back now to Egypt. I want you to speak to Pharaoh. I want you to tell him that it's time for him to let my people go. And I want you to tell my people that I have heard their affliction. I have heard their cry and I will deliver. And I need one man to cooperate with me. Go on back now out of Egypt and say what I said needs to be said now you remember how Moses responded he was uh, he was full of all kinds of excuses in chapter 3 and verse 11 listen to what he says Moses says to God who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt he realizes that this is a matter of salvation and redemption but he says you know what I don't think I'm good enough to do it he recognized that what God had called him to do was listen to it go who am I that I should go he says I'm not good enough in verse 13, Moses says to God, Behold, when I, came, uh, when I come to the children of Israel and shall say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? This is the second excuse. I don't know enough. God says, Listen, it's not about you. I'll be with you. Don't worry about it. He says, I don't know enough. God says, Listen, don't worry about this. I'll tell you exactly what you need to say. 
Moses in chapter 4 and verse number 1 says, uh, listen to this, Moses answers and says, But behold, they will not believe me nor hearken to my voice, for they will say, Jehovah has not appeared to you. Uh, I don't think I'll be effective. You know, I don't think the people will listen. God says, don't worry about that. Listen, I'll deal with that. I will give you confirmation so you can go and just say what I said needs to be said and I'll take care of the confirmation. Moses is still not moving yet. In chapter 4 and verse 10, Moses says to Jehovah, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. You know, I'm not a great speaker. I'm just not gifted in that area. Don't worry about that, God says. I made your tongue. I know how it works. Don't worry about that. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. God is not accepting any of Moses' excuses. And so we sort of get to the bottom line here in verse 13. And he said, O Lord, send, I pray thee, by the hand of whom thou wilt send. Get somebody else. You know, how disrespectful was that? I mean, how amazingly disrespectful was that? God has blessed this man He was born to a people who were in bondage. God arranged things so that this man was raised up in the house of Pharaoh's daughter, treated like her own son. The Bible says in Acts 7 that he was raised up and trained up in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. This man had had a blessed life from the time he was born. And then God looks to him and says, now I want you to cooperate with me. And he says back to God, get somebody else. I don't want to do it. Why didn't he want to do it? I mean, is it because he had failed once in the past? Is it because he had a lack of confidence? Is it because he didn't have a desire to cooperate with God in this respect? The bottom line is God said go and he said no. God wasn't too happy with that. The Bible says God was angered by all of this. God sort of, God sort of was at his wit's end dealing with Moses in this instance. God, listen, Moses did not answer God's call to go the right way the first time. I'm just, I'm just thankful we know this. We serve a God of second chances. He gives this man another opportunity, and this man does get himself together and agree to cooperate with God and go. And guess what? God does deliver Israel through him. He was still the same man, whatever weaknesses and limitations he had. He just agreed to cooperate with God, and God used him and blessed other people as a result. Moses' initial mindset was to shift responsibility. God said, go, and he said, no, maybe somebody else will do it. I wonder if you've ever been in that kind of a circumstance where you know for sure God wants something done. You can read and you say, listen, God's telling me to do something, and then you think to yourself, well, if I just don't move, maybe somebody else will come along and do it. Shifting responsibility. His attitude was, listen, anybody but me. Hope it gets done, uh, but just hope it doesn't mean that I have to do anything for it to get done. You remember Jonah. Turn to the book of Jonah. You remember Jonah. The Bible tells us that Jonah was called, the, or he was, in fact, the prophet of Gethhefer. 2 Kings 14, verse 25. His, his function was to speak for God. His function was to, was to say to others what God wanted said. The Bible says in Jonah, you recall this account in chapter 1, verse 1, the word of Jehovah came, came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, listen to it again, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. 
Jonah, I need a messenger. I need someone to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is the capital city of the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the tool, the people that God used to chasten Israel. Go to Nineveh, the capital city of that nation of peoples, and I want you to tell them what I want them to hear. Cry against it and tell them, listen, they need to repent or in three days the city is going to be overthrown. This man is uh, the prophet of Geth Hefer. He, he has agreed to be God's spokesperson. And look how he responds in, in verse 3. Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of Jehovah, and he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Anytime God calls you to cooperate with him and you refuse to cooperate with him, you're fleeing from his presence. And that's what Jonah was doing. But here's the thing. As fast as he was running away from God, he was running right back into God. You guys know what happened. God had prepared a great fish. God knew this day was coming. Jonah didn't realize it, but he runs into this great fish that God had already prepared. And he spends three days in the belly of that fish being chastened by the Lord. And now all of a sudden it hits him. Might have been easier for me to just do what God said in the first place. See, his attitude was to shirk responsibility. I know God wants these people to hear this message, a message of, a message of rebuke and a message of redemption. I know God wants them to hear it, but I'm not interested in telling them, and I don't care if nobody tells them, I'm leaving. I'm going the other way. God said, listen, I want you to go a short distance to the north and east. And he said, I'd rather go a long way to the south and west. I'm out of here. Sometimes people look right at God's call to do a thing and they will go all around the world to avoid doing it. It's just that there are consequences to that kind of thing. You know, when God says to do a thing, he means to do that. And after Jonah is chastened, he spends three days in the belly of the fish. Now, all of a sudden, it makes sense to him. You know, maybe I ought to just do what... Maybe I ought to just do what God said I should do in the first place. God of second chances. God causes the fish to vomit Jonah out. He, he coughs him up onto the dry land. Jonah goes into the city. The Bible tells us he goes into the heart of that city and he cries. A simple message, yet three days, and Nineveh's going to be overthrown. The whole city, from the king down to the least, repented in sackcloth and ashes. There was no magic in the man. The power was in the message. He just cooperated with God and gave them a simple message, and they repented in the face of it. I like to learn from other people's mistakes. I make my share of mistakes. I try to learn from them, but I'm under the impression that a wise person doesn't have to make every mistake personally. He can learn from other people's mistakes. See, what I see here is that when God tells a person to go, as he told Moses to go, that's what he means. When he tells a person to go, as he told Jonah to go, that's what he means. You know, why didn't Jonah go in the first place? You know, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it tells us, you know, he didn't go in the first place because he lacked love in his heart for the people he was being sent to. He did not love the people that God loved. That's why he didn't move. 
Yeah, I knew you. Kind of God you are. Merciful and gracious. And I knew if these people asked you, you would forgive them. And guess what? I don't want them to be forgiven. They don't deserve it. They deserve to be for destroyed for what they've done to Israel. And I didn't want them to hear the message of rebuke and redemption. That's why he didn't go. It is also possible, as uh, great as it is that we serve a God of second chances, it is also possible to sort of do what God says he wants done the first time. It is possible the first time you see that God is calling for you or calling for something to be done, it is possible to respond the right way the first time. Look at Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, this is one of the more thrilling passages in the whole Bible, uh, to me at least. In Isaiah chapter 6, the Bible tells us that the prophet has a vision of God on his throne. You'll see here, the Bible says in verse number 1 of chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. How do you see God in your mind? The Bible says he saw God high and lifted up, and his train filled the whole temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he did fly. These heavenly beings there in the presence of mighty Jehovah. Listen, two of them, they, they covered their eyes with two of their wings. Why? You know, I'm under the impression that God's holiness is so great, so profound, that even the heavenly beings cannot dare to look directly upon him. The Bible says these seraphim covered their eyes in his presence. That's the same thing Moses did, by the way, in Exodus chapter 3 in front of that burning bush. He covered his eyes. The Bible says these seraphim covered their feet with two wings. Why did they do that? You know, I'm under the impression any time you're in the presence of God, you're on holy ground. It doesn't matter where you are. It matters where God is. If you're in his presence, that ground is holy. The seraphim covered their feet with two wings, same way that Moses did in Exodus 3, with two wings. Bible says they did fly. Fly to do what? Whatever God said. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is Jehovah of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. God is thrice holy, they say, they see and say, and the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Now listen to Isaiah's response. Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone, he says, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. He says, my eyes have seen the king Jehovah the Lord of hosts see what's his response to being ushered into God's presence here oh boy I'm in big trouble because I know I'm not right I'm a man of unclean lips not just me but I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and here I am in front of a thrice holy God I'm in I'm in big trouble you know, you can't stand before a thrice holy God on your own steam. You, you'll never make it based on your own bona fides, your sort of own credentials. It'll never work. God is thrice holy. And guess what? We are not that. 
And, and if you never recognize it before, when you are ushered into his presence, you'll never have a more profound realization in your life who he is and who we are in relation to him. Well, I tell you, outside of Christ, it just doesn't work out very well. Isaiah says, woe is me, for I am undone. Now listen to this. In verse 6, then flew one of the seraphim unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongues from off the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, look, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin forgiven. If a person was willing to confess their faults before God, you know God is faithful and just to forgive a person for his shortcomings, his mistakes. He says, listen, I, I've got a mouth problem. I, I just come from a line of people that have a mouth problem. God says, you know, I've got a solution for your mouth problem. I always knew you had it. You see you have it too. I am willing to address you at the point of your problem. Forgive this man of his sin. Now something interesting happens. In verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? You see it again. Who will go for us? Something I want you to see here. Listen, when God spoke to Moses, he called Moses by name. Moses, Moses. When he spoke to Jonah, he addressed Jonah personally, directly. You, son of Amittai, arise and go. In this instance here, he doesn't call Isaiah by name. He just sort of, Isaiah's in the audience. Isaiah's in the position to hear. And, and, and God sort of muses, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? I've got something that needs to be done. Who, who should we dispatch? Who, who will go on our behalf? Go to do what? To speak to these people? To give them a message of rebuke and redemption? Who's going to go and do that? Isaiah hasn't been called by name, but I want you to see something. He says in verse number eight, then I said, here am I, send me. You mean there's an opportunity for somebody to cooperate with you in doing what you want done? You mean you're willing to use a human being as broken and frail as we are to accomplish your will. You, you mean to say in, in your role of being master of the human family and redeeming those who have fallen, you have a place for a human being? I mean, if somebody gets to go, why not me? If somebody gets to participate, here I am. Instead of shirking responsibility and running away, instead of shifting responsibility and letting somebody else do it, I am willing to shoulder responsibility. Please allow me to cooperate with you in saving others from, from what's to come if they don't repent. You mean that I can do that? You're willing to accept me and allow me to do that? I wonder why his attitude was different than Moses' attitude in the beginning and, and Jonah's attitude the first time. I wonder why his attitude was different. He was profoundly conscious of his weaknesses and his frailties, and he had his eyes on the fact that God had forgiven him of his sin. He saw God high and lifted up. See, he saw God as God is supposed to be seen. And he saw God not only for who God is up there, but who God was in his life. And he says, listen, if I can do anything 
See, be my privilege, my honor, be a blessing for me. If you'd let me do it, here I am, send me. Moses' attitude was, listen, anybody but me. Jonah's attitude was, not me. Isaiah's attitude, why not me? All three of these men were called by God to go. All three of these men were called by God to share a message of rebuke and redemption. Listen, rebuke, there's something you're doing that's not right. It's going to cost you redemption. I've got a solution for it. Go and tell these people what I want them to hear. I know you're not perfect, but listen, I am. I know that you've got some weaknesses, but I don't. I can use you, broken and frail as you are, to do what needs to be done. You just have to be willing to cooperate with me. One man, one woman. Save thousands. I'm under the impression uh, that God has called us to go. See, I'm under the impression, when I ask you in the beginning, how would you answer, that you have already answered. Jesus says, go ye therefore into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He that believes and is baptized shall be saved. Those who don't believe, they'll be condemned. Jesus says, go and make disciples among all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever things I have commanded you. I'm under the impression that we have been called the same way that these men have been called. And somebody will say, well, he hasn't called me by name. And then I would say he doesn't have to. If you have your eyes on who he is and what he has done for you, then you'd have a heart and a mind that says, if someone gets to go, why not me? I know I've, I've made some mistakes in the past. I know I've sort of failed. I don't think this is my strong suit, but you know what? God doesn't make mistakes. He has no weaknesses, and he can use even a frail person like me if I am willing to cooperate and listen to it. You know the consequences of everyone refusing to cooperate. People have to deal with the eternal consequences of their sin. And, and listen, they should have an opportunity to avoid that. Now, why didn't Moses go? He come up short in the past. Maybe he lacked confidence. Maybe he had gotten too comfortable tending sheep on the backside of a mountain. You know, he's the most overqualified shepherd in the history of the world. And he got comfortable being that. Why didn't Jonah go? He did not love people the way he should. He allowed his heart to be hardened. Instead of allowing his heart to be shaped around God's heart, he was focused on things that really he should not have been focused on. Sometimes, why don't we go? Probably for some of those same reasons. I'm inviting you this morning to fix your eyes on God. See him as he ought to be seen, high and lifted up. Pay attention to what he has done in your life. Whatever your weakness is, has God addressed that? Has he dealt with that for you? Has he forgiven you of your sin? Don't you feel a sense of gratitude in your heart for what he has done for you? And then when he says, go, listen, I, 
I don't read my name anywhere in the Bible, but I know he's talking to me. I don't read my name anywhere in the Bible, but it may as well be there because when I see God want something done, I know that means I have to shoulder responsibility, not shift it, not shirk it. And I'm inviting you to accept the responsibility to do what God says is to be done, to go because he says he wants somebody to cooperate with him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He died for your sins and for mine. It's not because I deserved it. It's not because you deserve it. It's because he loved us enough to do that. He died so that we could have new lives, so that we could come into God's presence, in him, come into God's presence and be made acceptable with him. I hope that means everything to you. And I hope you're willing to give everything to him. If you've not already obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. You come to God by faith, repentance, and baptism upon your confession that Jesus is the Son of God. If you have already done that and you recognize you've not been answering the way you should, make this your day of second chances. See, you can do better. Yes, you can. You can do better. And God keeps giving us this opportunity to do better. If we can help you, we would love to do that. If we can pray for you, we would love to do that. Let us know, please, if we can help you as we stand and